So the Man Cave is an organisation that works with boys and parents and teachers across Victoria and we hope Australia uh, to help boys open up about what's going on in their lives. Joel Lazar is the Head of Operations of the Man Cave, a preventative mental health and emotional intelligence organisation for boys and young men. Before joining the Man Cave, Joel spent a few years honing his craft in commercial law at one of Australia's leading law firms, but he became quickly disillusioned with law as an avenue to affect the change that he deeply wanted to see in the world. So he took a leap and left the legal profession to find a way to bring his love for poetry, incisive problem-solving, elements of his Jewish faith and views on what it means to be masculine to his current role, giving young men the emotional and life skills they need to grow up to be the men the world needs. If you've ever wondered whether you're in the right career for you, been stuck in a rut and feeling empty because your work doesn't reflect your values, and if you think masculinity needs a shake-up to recalibrate and reflect today's world, then this is the episode for you. Given the complexity of Jewish history in, in recent times, for you... From an early age, what was your relationship with that cultural weight, if you like, uh, in terms of what you had inherited? Did that play into your call to action to get involved in, you know, in the faith mm. and in some of the things you were doing? Yeah, th- there's a very important idea in Jewish faith that um, as part of the myth, the Jewish great Jewish myth that the Israelites you know, were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years and then they left slavery towards freedom. That is a narrative, but... Arguably, it's not really factual. It's a myth and it's an idea that there's a people who is small and oppressed by a greater, larger force and that if they, you know, work hard and have an opportunity to to be free and to seize their freedom, that in turn they then have an obligation to fight for other people's freedom who are in that same position at any other point in time. And so in this t- day and age, that's asylum seekers, it's refugees, it's people who are dislocated in Australia, people who are impoverished, people who are struggling. And so that imperative of the stranger is that a stranger is everyone, is, is, is anybody who is estranged from their life, from society, from community. Which and is so, almost yeah. everyone in some way. It's almost everyone in some way, absolutely. Everyone's and, struggling, yeah, yeah. In, enslaved by something yes. and wants to be free and move towards freedom in some way. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So, so in answer to that question of in what way did Jewish tradition, the weight of the heritage and that culture drive me towards this, very much so, because that's a common... That's a common idea and a very powerful myth that plays out throughout our tradition. Mm. Yeah. So you're talking about the the collective and and as we're saying the social norms and the Jewish ways. What about your parents? What role did they play in influencing mm. your belief system? Well, I lived in a very loving, caring, connected home, and my parents cared a lot about education, and so they invested heavily, often to sacrifice. You know holidays and nicer cars and you know while some of my friends were going to Bali and overseas in the summer I'd go to Anglesey and just camp and play cricket and as a kid which is an amazing (laughs) place but when you're a kid and you're comparing it to like hey why can't we go to you know Switzerland and Disneyland and it's like well how are they going to say well we're kind of investing in your private education so that you can give back to the world one day it's like oh okay did they say (laughs) that they didn't say that but I know now in hindsight having had discussions with them as an adult um, I've more and more appreciated the sacrifices that they made so that I could get that amazing education so that I could achieve what I needed to, to achieve in life. And um, you clearly made the most of your education because mm. you tell us about what you did when you finished school. What did you go into studying? Yeah, so I did arts and law at Monash. I started in commerce and law, but one week in, in a microeconomics class, 
learning about fungible um, things. I don't even know what fungible means anymore. It's some sort Is it of fungus. Uh, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the trade of the global trade of fungus. <laughs> It was just like, wow, this is this is too much. It's important, but I don't care. But to who? <laughs> yeah, to who? Somebody, not me. And actually, I knew that I was writing a lot of poetry at the time, just outside of uni, and I wanted to do creative writing. So I just moved from commerce to arts and made creative writing my major. And then for the next five years, I did law and focused a lot on my electives were sort of human rights and philosophy-based. Yeah, and I spent five or six years, actually closer to seven years doing arts law because I really wanted to make the most of all this amazing spare time you have in uni life where you're really only studying for about, I don't know, three or four months of the year and you've got all these amazing breaks and you can do all these extracurricular activities. So that was that was special and I got to write a lot of poetry because my assignments were poetry, so I had to write. What was your hope for practising or for studying law and perhaps practising in the future? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure at the beginning. I knew that I was going to acquire analytical skills that would be useful for life, no matter what I did. Um, I had an idea to just move into human rights law and I did an internship just before the end of my degree to explore that would be like in Geneva and the International Service of Human Rights. So they sort of did advocacy with the UN and it was an interesting experience, but I kind of learned that it was quite an ineffective and inefficient system, the UN human rights system. I think the UN does a lot of great things but in affecting proper social change, I didn't think the law was the right place to do it. It was at the level of social norms and social behaviours that we had learnt as a society, a civilization, through norms and myths and just stories. That was far more important to work on than change this law. Because you change a law, people, first of all, they still break the law and it doesn't necessarily show them why they should change their behaviours. <laughs> so do you have yeah. faith in the legal system itself? Uh, in, in elements of it. I think in... Uh, in test cases, like legal advocacy test cases, like Marbo, for example, is the classic case, um, which changed native title law forever. And that just couldn't have been done if it wasn't obviously through the legal system. Um, and that did encourage people to reconsider, oh, wait a second, we've always had this idea of terra nullius, that no one owned this land before anyone was here. Because of this court case, I'm now encouraged to think about it differently. And that I'm sure led to a lot of actual behaviour and social and attitudinal change afterwards. But I think cases, landmark cases like that are pretty rare given there's thousands of cases being run every day in Australia and I don't know how many of them are changing behaviours. So yeah. then you worked in the law for only a couple of years in commercial law. Yeah. And how was that for you? Mm, that was interesting. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. Um, it was in disputes, so people were fighting all day. And I'm quite a... Um, I'm quite a peace-oriented person, so having to help people navigate their fights was a bit incongruent for me, um, and I often felt they should just sort of talk it out, like you didn't actually need the lawyers, just like, let's just have an honest chat um, about what, what really your concern is. It's probably not about money, it's probably about your childhood, you know, or your parents, or something like that. Um, so that was very interesting, but, but it was a, it was a, fir it was a good firm, a good Australian firm that helped me learn all the things that I hoped to learn in my law degree that I thought I would analytical skills, assessing risk, um, dispute resolution, all these things are super useful for life. Um, and yeah, my partners trusted my work. And so they gave me more and more responsibility and that allowed me to reach out into new areas, work with different types of clients, different types of businesses. And then um, what happened when you started to rethink your relationship with being a lawyer? Um, what happened? So I started to identify that I wasn't using a lot of myself at work, my full personality, um, that what was really only needed was the very narrow analytical sort of side and some technical writing side. 
Um, and then there's this whole other part, like I've mentioned, like poetry and mm. Judaism and my personality and my humor and all kinds of things, which there's no, you don't really, there's no dollar figure on those things in the legal world. So it's like, they're not really needed. And the more I couldn't use them at work and I only had my one or two hours at night or the weekend to express those, the more I felt I need to go somewhere where I can use those things, you know, for the world. Cause I, sh- I'm, I was sure they also had some benefit to the world. They weren't just some weird quirks of mine that I had, you know, just to live with. So I started to, yeah, move along a path of where can I start doing that systemic social change that I've always been thinking about and volunteering in and think for, for many years, how can I start making that my career and my profession? And yeah, that was when I came across the Man Cave through a mutual friend of mine and the CEOs. Mm. What's the Man Cave? So what's the Man Cave? So the Man Cave is an organisation that works with boys and parents and teachers across Victoria and we hope Australia uh, to help boys open up about what's going on in their lives. We've, we've identified that a lot of the issues that men are struggling with today, like depression and anxiety and suicide and family violence, um, go back to some old myths and some old stories about the way men are supposed to behave. And the purpose of the man cave is to unpack a lot of those myths and challenge them and help boys redefine what masculinity actually means to them. And a lot of those myths are around being stoic, being strong, don't show your emotions at any cost, otherwise you'll be paid out. Um, and you'll be said that you're a girl. And it's, you know, the idea of certain behaviours are feminised, quote-unquote behaviours, and certain behaviours and attitudes are masculinized. And it's very important, especially for boys in high school, years seven, eight, nine, they're the people we work with most. Um, it's important for boys there not to feel like they've been feminised. And so they do everything they can to not be feminised and that their behaviours and views won't appear to be too womanish, which society says is sharing your emotions openly and saying, I'm afraid or I'm scared or things like that. So the purpose of the man cave is to normalize those things and say it's actually okay. Not only is it okay, it's important. It's actually important that you find these parts of yourself because they are a part of you and the more that you lock them away, the more they'll come out in unhealthy and destructive ways later in your life. So what's an example of how you do that with these young men? Because they, they're not thinking like you're thinking when you arrive for this six-hour intensive workshop. Hmm. How do you start to break down the barriers and the, the myths? Hmm. Well, we spend the first couple of hours of our workshops in schools building trust, building trust, because the first thing that a lot of young guys will feel is, what's what's this all about? Are you going to tell us what to do? Are you going to tell us how to behave? No one tells me what to do, you know? So, and especially also I'm on guard. They might be thinking I'm on guard because if I do open up, there'll be someone perhaps around me who will now see me differently. And I have lost my mask and I've been spending, you know, X years or X months building this mask that I'm, I'm tough and I don't have feelings. Um, and if I say something in this room, I might lose that mask. So we spend the first couple of hours building trust, a bit of humor, breaking ice, even just playing some games. So they feel light. Okay. I can relate to these facilitators and the key part of the program or the key the way that it succeeds so well is that the facilitators are just such special people and they're young guys from all walks of life in their 20s, mid-20s, high 20s, um, yeah, who have all kinds of interesting backgrounds. Um, you know, some of them are life coaches, some of them are refugees from other countries, some of different religions, different cultures um, from the country, from the city. Um, and so they're not um, qualified teachers that you're using per se? No, they're not teachers. Um, they have a whole bunch of different certifications that we put them through, like youth mental health first aid training, and they're working with children checks and child safety training and all that. And then we have a bespoke sort of training program, which we put them all through, depending on their skill level and their personality type to upskill them in the key areas that we feel they need to connect with young boys. Um, so holding safe space for boys in circles and conversational style 
style and play and humor and all the things that we know that young boys connect to and trying to use all of those in an effective way to open up a conversation. Mm-hmm. And what's the actual uh, pedagogy, if you like to use a technical word around it, that, what's the framework that yeah. you use um, for your programs? Do they align to the curriculum or is it mm. outside of that? Is it psychology? It's a lot of different things. It's a great question. Um, So we rely heavily on positive psychology principles, which is really just based on finding people's strength as opposed to focusing on their weaknesses. And, And the reason we relied on that framework specifically is we felt that was one of the underlying causes that we're in this state today is that a lot of guys or young men are being told that you're, you know, you're wrong for behaving that way. Like don't do that and sit in the corner and face, face away and all that kind of shaming and negative talk. Um, really just emphasizes the negatives in their personality. And so positive psychology helps bring out what they're capable of. And we see the impact of using positive psychology ideas and techniques and evidence in the workshops because we know that some of the boys, um, when we come in, the teachers will say to watch out for certain boys and their behaviors. You know, this one's the bully or this one's, you know, destructive or this one's a bit irritating or whatever, which tells us that that's how, that's the language that they've been using to describe that, that young man he's probably overheard it or has a vibe of that. Um, And that when we point out and find a strength in him, maybe it's a leadership strength, maybe it's actually he has more compassion and kindness and warmth than he thought he did, um, then, you know, that's amazing to put up a mirror to him and be like, oh, I had no idea that that was actually in me. And so that's a very effective framework. And we also use rites of passage theory, which is just based on an idea that a lot of boys in other cultures and ethnicities had a very clear journey for transitioning from boyhood to manhood. Um, And that involved them taking on more responsibility for themselves and their community. And there was a clear process where the elders would take them through that and teach them their lessons of what they learned growing up. And that we've lost a lot of that today. It's like the hero's journey. um, It's totally the hero's journey. We go out into the wilderness to then come back and find ourselves. And a lot of kids, Mm. possibly in our parenting culture, which can be um, too overbearing these days in certain um, demographics, that, that you... Uh, really constrain the ability for that individual to go out and have that journey to self. So how do you guys, if you talk about the rites of passage, so just break down like the fundamentals of that, uh, mm. if, if we align that to the hero's journey theory. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that the hero has to have go through a challenge. And so for us, the micro challenge inside the workshop is often just going through um, something that's emotionally uncomfortable for them, just a little bit emotionally uncomfortable. So they feel a little bit stretched um, and going through a challenge and discovering the treasure, you know, discovering that treasure is discovering the emotional treasure that they have inside of them. And then going back to the village afterwards with that treasure is saying, I now have this. I now know that I'm capable of this kindness or I'm capable of this courage or this bravery. And then showing that back to the village, which is their friends, their peers in their class and now them being recognized as having changed and having gone through that hero's journey. Um, And now they get reaffirmed for that behavior and they now feel normal to now use that and incorporate that into their new personality. So that all transpires in a six hour period? That's the plan. Yeah. (laughs) How do you ensure long-term change is embedded? Because Mm. um, that sounds super powerful in one day, but we know how challenging it is to make long-term change stick. Perfect question. And I think it's the question that all people who work in social change should be asking. How do we make this awesome experience this person has had lasts for a really long time? Um, And that's part of our journey at the Man Cave of continually improving our evidence base and data and best practice so that we know that the ways that we're working with the boys is going to have the longest term behavior change possible. We already know that long-term behavior change is happening even through this workshop because we'll get, for example, an email from a wellbeing coordinator a few months 
realized later, just reflecting back, saying the culture has transformed in the hallways of the school. You know, some of these boys were really disrespectful to their female peers and teachers. When you came and afterwards, they're, they're no longer doing that. They get it now, you know, and that's even months later after the single workshop. But we still know the evidence says that you need to have high dosage, so to speak, you know, maybe four to six workshops um, and not too far apart. You don't want them having 10 years apart, you know, within a couple of years would be great. And is this a, a blended model? Do you have digital resources as well that the students can so that Yeah, that's a great question. That's the next stage for us. And part of our mission, ultimately Man Cave's mission, is both programs, resources and role models. Mm-hmm. And so programs have been, have been going really well. And now the next year or two, we really want to focus on developing these really engaging online resources so that when we finish with a workshop, we can plug the boys into this amazing online sphere where they can watch videos and get content and continue that journey and share with each other and especially to create and co-create some of that content because we know that it's very powerful for them to feel like they have ownership over their own emotional journey and if we just say hey here's this amazing stuff learn it it's they may feel like hey that's not mine I didn't make that I didn't have any role in that and so we want to try and find ways to have them as co-collaborators as much as possible. Mm. And do you have a, is there a champion model around this? Are there certain students in the school that will pick up what you've got and then t- continue to, to carry that mm. through uh, the school itself? Or do you sort of come into the workshop and leave at the moment? Um, well, what we do know is there'll be boys who will go on our Instagram page afterwards saying, we loved your merch. Where do we buy your merch? <laughs> Which is great. And to us, that tells us we want to be your ally. We want to wear your t-shirts and your jumpers and your beanies because we want to walk around and we love this experience so much that we're happy to walk around and saying we're associated with this, this organization. Um, but that's also part of our development in the coming couple of years is to work with some of the boys we've worked with in year seven, eight and nine and have them as sort of our allies and to champion the cause within their school. What would it be like if every young man in Australia attended in one-off and multiple man cave workshops? How do you think our personal relationships and our workplaces would be different? (laughs) Dream big, Joel. Yeah, so good. Um, Well, I think many, many men would feel more fulfilled in their lives ultimately, and they would bring that sense of fulfillment to their intimate partner relationships, to their friendships, to their families and their communities and societies. Um, And they would feel uh, they had permission to do whatever they wanted in life and not just a narrow set of things. And maybe that manifests in childcare activities, you know, that now I can actually take time off and maybe replace, you know, I can be the primary carer for a while or, they can go into professions they never thought were possible, you know, traditionally teaching, nursing, things like that, that have con- you know, been feminized for so long. Many Australian men might feel actually that suits my strengths perfectly. Mm. And then society will benefit from having this influx of just different types of people, more diversity in those areas. And naturally we also feel that if this vision was accomplished, there'd be less aggression, there'd be less violence, there'd be less antagonism and people would have more self-awareness, more s- emotional self-regulation, ultimately satisfaction. Yeah, harmony. Mm. One of the most important things is to present role models, male male role models in society that these types of men who just need permission to go there can see there is a man. Oh, there's a model for something that I can do. Because if they feel they're just being spoken down to and whether or not we agree that they feel that way, that's, that may be how they feel. We have to work with that. Um, having a role model who's like them, who they relate to, 
and as a gender, they might just look to another man and be like, okay, I'll listen to the messenger. And often it's the messenger, which will, you know, who holds the message, the message may be pure, but if it's the wrong messenger, they don't care about the Mm. message. So what role do you think fathers play as opposed to mothers in that story? Just critical because I mean, a lot of the fathers, let's say in my father's age group in their, in their sixties, I mean, they're, their post-war fathers and their parents often went through the war. My grandparents went through the Holocaust and the Second World War, and they had to cultivate these traits. You know, none of this should say that that they're wrong for having carried these traits for so long in this story because they were necessary for survival. Um, I suppose all, all I'm saying is, thankfully, we live in a really peaceful society now, at least in Australia and in many places around the world. There's still a lot of war, but we now have an opportunity to reconsider those traits and fathers can reconsider those traits within their family family units if if they feel that they're not necessary for survival so are you working does man cave you said you work with families do you work with parents specifically as well yeah so that's an emerging area of ours when we acknowledge that boys would have this really transformational experience and they would go home and parents be like what happened i don't understand you know um, we started to work with parents and we would open it up to the parents of that particular school community. Um, and that's been going well. And parents have written back to us all kinds of amazing stories about how, you know, our boy, I remember Bryce, just cause there's a boy named Bryce, you know, you know, Bryce used to come home and spend X hours on his, you know, PlayStation for hours and just slam his door and all that kind of stuff. And now he comes home and he asks everyone how their day was. And he's far more just emotionally available to his family after having gone through the workshop and, uh, it was useful for that because that parent also went through our information and training session before to understand what would happen. So she knew what process he had been through. And so she was prepared to continue the journey with him. Um, so that's going to be an important part of it. And then there's just this idea of the social ecological model, which is just the, to affect great social change, you've got to work at the different spheres, the individual, the relationship, the family, the institution. And so we acknowledge that the family unit and the community level are important parts of that that model Mm. Mm. and I do think particularly that the father role because we know that the same gender relationship so father son or mother daughter is particularly potent because that's who we identify with Mm. as a child that's the parent that looks most like me you know at least by gender so even that example you gave I noticed you mentioned she it was the mum that was engaged in that process Mm. Well, it's interesting. The Jesuit Social Services did a study called the Man Box Study last year where they interviewed a 1,000 men in Australia from the ages of 18 to 30. And one of the results they found when they asked a question of who do you go to when you need help in your life um, to these men, that mother was very, very high on the list, like going to mum and sharing some sort of struggle was very high. I don't actually remember where their fathers were on the list, but mums were very high. So even the opposite sex relationship was was still there. Of course. Yeah, obviously. Mother as nurturer, as carer, as as softer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you wish you'd known about mental health, particularly boys' mental health, uh, when you were growing up that you know now and didn't know then? Well, I spent a lot of my emotional energy in high school just protecting myself just not, I think that was just normal. It just seemed normal to not share what you actually thought and felt and what you were struggling with, especially to your male peers. And I actually, most of my friends at school were women. And and I, in high, and I reflected on that quite a lot after high school. And the strong conclusion I came to was they were more emotionally available and they were more accepting when I came to them with some tricky life things and struggles and things like that. And I 
I must have intuitively felt that my male relationships wouldn't give that to me. So I just gravitated towards the ones that were nourishing me. Um, What were you protecting yourself from? Probably ridicule, ridicule or shame or embarrassment because there was this code, this unwritten code that we were policing each other on. And in hindsight, that's not the language I would have thought of then, but in hindsight, what was certainly happening was if I open up, I'll be policed on having broken that rule, the rule that you don't share about that, that you don't talk about that, that you don't raise that issue. And by policed, are you talking about bullying or physically attacked, criticised, estranged? What happens when you're policed? Not really physically, not in my school, maybe in other schools, there'd definitely be bullying and, and physical things. Um, but in my school, it would just be, it, was, it would be through words. Yeah, it would be through words. You'd get a glance. You might be unspokenly ostracized, like you might not be invited to join the footy team um, or just, you know, sitting at the lunch table out in the yard. Like it's obvious when you're welcome at that table and when you're not welcome at that table. So I probably had that intuitive fear that if I start talking about these things, I won't be welcome at the lunch table as a metaphor, you know. Um, but it, was, it would have been quite subtle, but no doubt it would have been felt because – Young people, they're still smart. They know how to exclude each other in very sophisticated ways. And we're so desperate to be included and to connect with mm. our peers, particularly in those years. So it takes a very strong and, well, brave and challenging mindset to think I can push this in order to speak my truth and be me mm. at the risk of being estranged or excluded from the tribe. Yeah, and in hindsight, there's a few friends I had in school who I, I admire more and more over the years for having stood out and just doing their thing. I had a musician friend who was just interesting. Like she played jazz and she was a comedian and she just did her thing. And at the time, you know, it was cool and it was interesting, but I thought if I tried to do that, that would have been really risky behavior, just standing out too much perhaps. Um, but in hindsight, thinking about her personality, I think she just, she just did it. That was her. She didn't really consider about whether or not she'd be accepted or not. And if she wasn't, ultimately she moved to another high school and she loved it there. She just sort of just danced to her own beat. And there's always a couple of people in high school like that. I'm picturing you in your uni years going off and, and being able to study arts and poetry and think this is really at the core who I am and I can explore this and it's appropriate and it's acceptable because it's part of my uni degree. And that must have been such a time of freedom. And you also had the safety of law side by side so you were doing the right thing while honouring the real Joel. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good analysis. <laughs> and you've yeah. continued to do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and are you yeah. in your sweet spot now with the work you're doing? Far more, far more. I, I think there's always that feeling of the grass is greener somewhere else, especially on a tough day. You know, you might be in the weeds and you're trying to figure out things logistically and your brain's exploding and you're like, oh, if only blah, mm. you know, if only I worked in this place or that place or, you know, uh, two days a week or whatever it is. Um, but right now it's way up there. I'm, I'm fulfilled. The culture at the man cave is unbelievable. There's this kind of openness and frankness where we share with each other. We speak honestly to one another about what's going on in the workplace. Do you have processes around that? Yeah, we have a couple of really interesting and effective ones in the morning. We have set aside 15 minutes every morning for a check-in call it the check-in and we actually run this with the boys in high schools as well and it's a very simple exercise ultimately it's challenging at the beginning because not everyone's used to it but it's ultimately going around in a circle and just sharing what's going on for you in your life at that moment it's not really a checklist of events it's more just I'm feeling x right now and you might share a bit about why and that's not just sort of a group therapy session it's more so that every member of the staff group can tell everybody else how they are 
And then throughout the day, you can accommodate for that in ways that, you know, you, you might, everyone's kind anyway, but you might be just that extra bit kinder, a bit more accommodating, a bit more patient and a bit more understanding. If someone gets something back to you a little bit late, you'd be like, they're struggling right now. I totally am going to give them far more flexibility maybe than I might have otherwise. And permission to be real. To bring their whole self to work. Exactly. And all that stuff I spoke about at the beginning back at the firm where I didn't get to do that as much, you can just tell that people are far more excited to be at work, to come to work, to be involved and passionate and proactive at work when they are, you know, when all of their selves are there. Um, So that check-in is really effective. How can we emulate that in our relationships and in family units? What can we take home for listeners who are thinking, what's one thing I can do differently after hearing some of Joel's insights and what the man cave is doing? Well, I use the principles of check-ins all the time with my partner and with my family. Um, And ultimately, it's just about bringing your listening and seeking to understand before you uh, seek to be understood. And so in my own partnership with my girlfriend, I, if, if there's something that's stewing in the air, you know, there might be something that's a little bit, there's something tense. It happens in all relationships. A lot of people might be inclined to just bury it. Don't worry about it. We'll just go to sleep. It'll sort itself out. And so more and more, because of this practice that I'm cultivating every day at the man cave, if we notice this in each other, you simply state it. There's nothing wrong. Nothing's going to happen if you state, I'm noticing you're feeling a little bit distant right now. And so a lot of people might be like, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not going to like open up and explode, but nothing's going to happen. Ultimately it's our sort of reptilian brain that's telling us everything's going to fall apart. If you, if you state what you emotionally feel is in the air right then. So it's really for people who are listening, you can just state what's happening in the air and say, I'm noticing X. You're Mm -hmm. not accusing them of anything, but I'm noticing there's something here. Would you like to talk about it? Mm -hmm. You know, and it may or may not be the right time. They may say, let's talk about it later. I'm not, ready to talk about that now and then later inevitably it does come up again and with the check-in principle you're just there to listen your aim is not to assert your position or to state why you're right and why the other person is wrong or to solve or fix or to solve or just fix. create space create mm. space yeah and it's it can be a masculine tendency more than a feminine tendency to solve and to fix and so when i come to those conversations with my partner reminding myself I'm not here to fix or solve your problems or our problems, but just to hear you out and to listen and together to come to something. We always grow after having those conversations. Hmm. What kind of father would you like to be, Joel? Well, that assumes that, you know, fatherhood is on my horizon. Um, And if it is, it's just, just to listen and cultivate, listen to my kids and to cultivate in them wherever they want to go, like full acceptance. Ultimately what we really need and want in life is acceptance from the people that love us. Um, so just to accept them wholly and fully for who they are is, is really, I'd say the main ingredient for, especially for their happiness. And in Judaism, it's also really important to me that I continue to cultivate and pass on the Jewish traditions that gave me so much and that motivate me in life to make a change in the world. And I would hope that I'd be a father that cultivated that type of environment in our home where my kids are really excited about the tradition. They engage with it in their own ways, not in the ways that I tell them, but that I open up the door to them and I give them the tools to be able to read the old texts and interpret it in the ways that they want and, and then to make of it what they want and to live that richly and to incorporate that into their lives. Mm, that's powerful. Joel, at the end of all of our interviews, we like to ask our guests one question. We know life is messy and we wonder who you think does human well. I actually have a friend who I think does life really well. Uh, her name's Elise. 
Um, and she's married and has a kid and has another one coming along. She also admits about her life or says about her life that she thinks she has the best life. (laughs) And it's really based on, she has a nice balance between drive. So she's a lawyer for Victorian legal aid in child protection. Um, so she has a very full on job and full on life while she's at work, but she has extremely clear boundaries for when she's not at work. And she doesn't stew on it all night and prepare her cases all night. She does an amazing job and she's well-respected by all of her peers. But when she's home, she's with her kid and she's with her husband. And she's also very involved in Jewish life and she's cultivating all of her interests and she's also silly and also serious. And so she's just found a way to, not in a negative way, compartmentalize all of the areas that she finds valuable to her and to make sure that she's fulfilling all of them. So she's very intentional and very structured about how her life looks and doesn't allow anything just to come to chance. And I think it's quite an, it's an admirable balance that I think she's struck. So I very much see her as a role model for me. Mm. It's really a story about boundaries, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially in the world of uh, entrepreneurs and, and business and business owners and CEOs and people who are trying to really do something in the world, they often, they're just so passionate. It's just there all the time. It's always on their mind. All of their thoughts are around what's the next thing? How can I make this bigger and better? And there'll always be something bigger and better. So the question is like, how do you protect yourself? And I've always strongly felt that no one's going to protect you better than you will protect you. Mm-hmm. So you just, you need to protect yourself. You're, you need to have your own interests at heart. It sounds like Joel, you said at the beginning, I am here was the phrase you used. Thank you for being with us. And it sounds like you are truly here. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us. So what we really hope is that these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe a few others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.